church family. So there was once a man who was famous in his neighborhood for growing a very long and thick beard. He was always known for just his thick locks of hair, and he would always trim it and, and take care of it on his own. He was a very plain, kind of forward man in that way. But as he entered into retirement and, and came towards a new season in his life, he decided, you know what, I'm going to treat myself, and I'm actually going to go to the barber, and I'm going to get a shave. I'm going to go get a haircut, and, and I'm going to be taken care of really, really good and nice. And so he went to his friend's place. He, he grew up with his friend Tom, and uh, his friend Tom and his wife Grace had a barber shop there in town. And, and so he went and treated himself to a, a nice haircut and, and a nice, clean, smooth well-shaven face. But after he left Tom's place and Grace's place, that barbershop on the corner of the street, he, he realized something funny had happened. His beard wasn't growing back. Day after day, it would usually only take a, a few days for, for the beard to come back in full force, but weeks had gone by, and, and every morning he would check, and his face was just as smooth as it was the day he went into that barbershop. And he was starting to get a little worried and, and a little bit bothered. And so finally, he stormed back in and into Tom's place at, at the barbershop there and on the street corner. And he said, what's going on? I, you shaved me? You gave me a haircut? And I haven't grown a beard since then, and it has been months. And Tom looked at him and said, well, don't you know you were shaved by grace? Once shaved, always shaved. This church has a long history of Baptist jokes before sermons. And in honor of Pastor Jim, I figured that I would follow suit in that. I hope you welcome Jim and Virginia here while they visit, and they're a wonderful part of our church family. Uh, you guys have had a wonderful part of, of this church's ministry, and we just want to say that we welcome you, and we appreciate you guys. Let's get ready now to shape our hearts and, and tune our hearts and prepare them for God to continue to speak through his word. We're not ending worship for the time of the sermon. We're continuing worship through the time uh, in God's Word. And so let's pray that God works not through me, uh, not even through this service, but uh, through His Scripture to shape our hearts, to shape our lives, and to create change in the way that we follow Him and honor Him and praise Him here on this earth. So pray with me to that end. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this church. Thank you for this church family and the ways that you have been with us and protected us and been good to us. Lord, I pray that all of us, we will be impacted by your spirit through what, what you have to say in your word. And that regardless of what I have to say, may that be forgotten, but may what you have to say in Colossians, may that be remembered and may it have an eternal impact in our lives, our families, and in this church, and in this region. So use us to that end, and we pray this in your Son's name, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The city of Colossae was located on one of the largest fault lines in the Roman Empire. It was right over the edge of two tectonic plates, representing both Asia and Europe, that happened to meet right under where the city of Colossae and its neighboring city of Laodicea was located. And so when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, he was writing to a city that was right over a crack, you might say, of two worlds, two tectonic plates that you can see in the screen above me, right below them. 
But in the same way, just as they were living above two tectonic plates physically in Colossae, the church of the Colossians also lived over two tectonic plates spiritually. There were two worlds that had met in them becoming Christians and functioning as a church in that city. These Christians now had to live in two worlds. They had to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom while also remaining cities uh, or citizens of the earthly kingdom. When they were saved, just like you and I, they weren't instantly raptured and whisked up into heaven. They were given a mandate to live as heavenly people, yet still in an earthly setting. So just as the city itself was above this fault line of two tectonic plates, so too spiritually was the church of the Colossians. And in fact, because of the location of this city, the area was known for its earthquakes. It was known for moments when the two plates would either slip and slide over each other or would pull away from each other. And when those things would happen, there would be devastation in that area. And I would like to propose to you that in the same way, when we overemphasize our call to live in one of two worlds, we also cause spiritual devastation. Because most Christians, if they were to look at the two tectonic plates of their life, they're called to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, yet also citizens of this earthly world. Many Christians tend to fall into just one of the two. For example, you may find Christians who they are so focused, and rightly so, on their identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven that they completely privatize their lives. They, 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 they hold themselves up and they try to block out the rest of the world as best they can so that they can have a very private and a very individual walk with the Lord. Maybe you've heard people describe that, that their Christianity is something that is just between them and God, that it's something that they practice privately, and that the need for church or interaction with other Christians or the need to fulfill the Great Commission, well, that can be avoided because the real call is to live as, as Christ's citizen here on earth and, and avoid the rest of the world. That would be one fault of living on one tectonic plate. Yet we also know of other Christians who they want to live too much on the other tectonic plate of living in this world, being in communities, being part of churches where they feel something, where they feel encouraged, where they have people that they enjoy being around, where they can go on missions trips and, and feel excited and this sense of intensity in what they do, yet with no real desire to love or worship or obey Christ in their actual lives. I think we see examples of both of those here in the United States and honestly even here in western Washington, of us as Christians living on the fault line between heaven and earth and not figuring out how we can live in a way that is honoring to God in both of the tectonic plates that he has called us to for this time here on earth. And so as we turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, I believe that we're going to find a perfect example from Paul in exactly how we can go about doing that. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 5. And through the words of Paul, we are going to learn in Paul's example 
how we as Christians can honor God both vertically in the way that we relate to him as saved believers, but also horizontally in the way that we proclaim him and honor him in the way that we act here on earth. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and as you're turning there, I want to remind you that this is not a textbook. This is not just a set of doctrines. This is not a statement of beliefs. This is a letter written by a real person to a real group of people for real practical reasons. And when we look at Scripture, this would be something helpful to remember for the future, that regardless of genre, regardless of Old Testament or New Testament, all of Scripture tends to fall under one of two categories. And that, those two categories are going to be either prescriptive or descriptive language. All of Scripture is either descriptive or prescriptive. Prescriptive language would be like when a doctor prescribes you something. It's when the Bible tells you specifically what to do. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery, etc., etc. But there are also times in Scripture where we don't get prescriptive language. We also get descriptive language, where we see examples of someone who murdered or who committed adultery and the results that happen because of those things. As we look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, and as we recognize that this is a letter, it's important to notice that this is descriptive language, that this is not Paul giving us three points in how to live as honorable Christians vertically and horizontally. This is Paul modeling it for us. This is Paul writing an actual letter, and in doing so, he is giving us a picture. He is setting an example for us to also follow. And at the beginning of this morning's sermon, as we talk about this letter to the Colossians and how to live as Christians both vertically and horizontally, I'm going to give you the big idea at the top of this morning's sermon and note that this morning's passage is going to be summarized by this fact, that your attitude towards God vertically is always going to be revealed in your attitude towards the church horizontally, and really vice versa that we are called to have both a vertical faith and a horizontal uh, life of obedience in a way that is fitting into each other, just like two tectonic plates will fit into each other. And over these next three verses, Paul, as he's writing this letter, he is going to model and give an example of exactly how that's going to be the case in him practically writing this introductory paragraph in his letter to these Christians in Colossae. So let's look at the first verse and see the first way in which Paul models both vertical faith and a horizontal life of obedience for God's glory. He starts out in verse 3 by saying, we always, referring to him and Timothy, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. The first point that Paul is modeling in how to have our attitude of God be reflected in our attitude of the church, is that, number one, Paul thanked God as a result of praying for the Colossian church. So often, as we look at that first point there in your bulletin, so often as Christians, we think of thankfulness as an emotion. We talk about feeling thankful or having a heart of thankfulness or having a spirit of thankfulness. 
But that is rarely, if ever, how the New Testament describes thankfulness. The New Testament doesn't describe thankfulness as merely a feeling that Christians have. It describes thankfulness as an action that Christians have directly towards God in the form of prayer. We see this consistently. If you were to turn to John chapter 6, you would see Jesus feeding the 5,000, and as he's receiving the loaves and fishes, he's thankful for it, but he doesn't just feel thankful for it. He expresses that thankfulness by giving thanks to the Father. In the same way, at the Last Supper with Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, Paul reminds the church that Jesus, when he was having this meal with the disciples, he didn't just feel thankful. It specifically says that Jesus gave thanks to the Father. In the same way, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about how no filthy talk should come out of our mouths to other Christians or to anyone but that instead it should be replaced with words of thankfulness. The filthy words, the vulgar words, should be, responded, uh, should be replaced with words of thankfulness. And then also there's many examples, but 1 Thessalonians 5.18, 1 Timothy 1.2, we see Paul repeatedly describing thankfulness not merely as something he feels because of the Christians that he's writing to, but specifically something that he is doing in response toward the Lord. Which shows us that there is a relationship between how we feel about each other, but also how we obediently respond to God. That if you claim that you are thankful for your church family, yet you are not actively praying to the Lord in expressing that thankfulness, according to the New Testament, you're not sincere. You're not truly thankful. If you claim that you're thankful for your Bible study leader or for the worship team or for the youth ministry, yet you are not actively being obedient in expressing that thanks in prayer towards the Lord, you are not being thankful in the way that the Bible calls us to be thankful. You are living merely on just one tectonic plate. We're not just called to horizontally feel a certain emotion towards each other, but to go before the Lord in active obedience in prayer for those people. And in doing so, you want to know what happens? The more you are actually praying to the Lord in thankfulness for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the more of a heart and an emotion of thankfulness the Holy Spirit will produce in you for each other. But Paul is making it clear here in his modeling of this, not necessarily in his commanding of this, but how he models himself as an apostle and a pastor, that he is thankful for them, but not just merely thankful. He is thankful in such a way that is drawing him to prayer. In Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, I don't want us to just be a thankful church. You can go to Mormon congregations that are thankful for one another. I want to be a church that is praying in thankfulness for one another, that is going before the Father with full access, according to the book of Hebrews, because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, that no other religion or denomination or, or, or cult or even Mormonism has, but we have, and therefore we can be, go beyond just a horizontal feeling of thankfulness. We can pray to God in response to that 
And through that, that vertical living in addition to horizontal living, God will build his church. You may be asking specifically, how can we do that? How can we be a church that is praying for one another in thankfulness? I don't think many churches realize this, but do you know that your membership directory is one of the most powerful prayer tools that we have as a church? It's amazing to just open up your directory and week by week, start with the first letter in the alphabet, start with the A's, go through the B's, work your way all the way down, and as you're going through the names and the families, to be praying for them in thankfulness. The membership directory doesn't just have to be something so we can find someone's email address. It can be a tool for us praying for each other, and a church that is praying for each other is also a church that is thankful for each other. And a church that is praying in thanks for each other is a church that is unified and a church that is glorifying God in the midst of a fallen world. So let's not just have an emotion of thankfulness. Let's have an action of thankfulness that draws us to vertical prayer before the Lord in response to that. We see Paul model that here in verse 3. But let's go on to the second point that he models for us and how to live on these two tectonic plates of heavenly living while still here on earth. He says in verse 4, he explains why he has been so thankful and why he and Timothy have been praying to the Lord in thankfulness. In verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. You'll notice that in every verse that we give, there are two Christian concepts. Every verse in this passage today has two concepts, and one of them relates to how we relate to God, and the other one concerns how we relate to each other. There's a pattern that Paul is following here. The first one in verse 3 concerned how we relate vertically to God through prayer, but also in how we relate horizontally to each other in thankfulness. And let's look at verse 4 and see what those two concepts would be, and maybe even guess which one is vertical and which one is horizontal. I'll read it one more time. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. The second point that Paul models in this verse is that the Colossian church loved the saints as a result of their faith in Christ. As Christians, we tend to dichotomize those two. We tend to look at faith as one thing and love as another thing. And you hope to have enough faith to save you and get into heaven. And you hope to have enough love that there's not conflict in your life that makes you uncomfortable. But very rarely do we connect them, which is odd because the New Testament repeatedly connects the concepts of Christian faith and Christian love. In fact, 24 times, in 24 separate verses in the New Testament, we see the words faith and love mentioned in the very same breath. Again and again, the New Testament will describe faith in the same conjunction, in the same breath as it describes love for others. For example, a very famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, says that, this is Paul writing to the church in uh, Corinth. He says that if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not 
love, I am nothing. In the same way, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. This is a repeated pattern that we see in the Bible where Paul, he says that he's thankful for the church in Colossae, and he's thankful for their faith, but not just their faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that is shown in their love for others. First John talks about this often, where John writes that if you love God, you will love others. In the same way, James talks about how faith without works, love being one of those works, is a dead faith. Do you know that your capacity to love others in a Christ-like way is dependent on the degree of faith that you have in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because the reason why we fail to love people so often is because we are threatened by them. We have a desire to lift ourselves up while putting other people down. And so because of that, that gives us reasons to not want to love someone because they either bother us or annoy us, or they're different from us, or they do things that uh, we, thinking we're the center of the universe, just goes against what we think ought to be. But when we have a faith in Jesus Christ, it is a faith that reminds us that he is the potter, and we are the clay, and that he is the creator, capital C, and we are the created, lowercase c. And if he is the potter, and if we are the clay, then that means that those around us are also clay. And if God would love us so much that he would form us and shape us and invest in us and know us even though we are merely clay in his hands, then that also means that we should see other people through the same lens through which God sees them. The more faith we have in Christ, the bigger he becomes and the smaller we become. And the smaller we become, the bigger other people become in our capacity to love them and to be patient with them and to bear with them. Those are not just things that come from us with a sense of mental or emotional fortitude we try to do to avoid conflict or to grease the wheels of society. It is in direct correlation to the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Which is why if you claim that you have faith in the Lord, if you claim to have that vertical trust that God has saved you, that you are a sinner, yet you treat others with contempt, if you treat others as if you are better than them, if you treat them without a sense of honor or without a sense of respect, then that reveals a heart that is not truly putting your faith in Christ or growing in that faith because it reveals more about how you see yourself which is very big compared to others. True faith reminds us that we are small and that God's forgiveness is great. In the words of John Newton, who wrote the words to Amazing Grace, at the end of his life he said, I am old, uh, I once was young, and I am reminded of two things, that, not, that I am a great sinner, but also that Christ is a great Savior. When we have that kind of faith, it impacts the way that we treat others. And so because of that, the two tectonic plates, the two concepts, both vertical and horizontal, is that our faith in Jesus Christ is going to result in a love for the saints. And you may be wondering, saints, what does that mean? This is the second time that the word saints 
has appeared in Colossians chapter 1. It occurred in verse 2 when Paul is addressing the saints who are in Colossae. We may think of the word saint as a special person or an incredibly obedient person, or maybe someone who in the Roman Catholic tradition uh, supposedly performed miracles after their death. But in the Bible, the word saint is really just shorthand for those who are sanctified. Those who have been saved and sanctified means to be set apart as God's people. So as you look around at your church family, as much as they may bother you at times, as much as you may have disagreements with them at times, you are sitting amongst saints. You are sitting amongst people that God has set apart for his own pleasure and for his own glory. Treat them like it. Treat them like it. And then finally, we come to verse 5, where Paul ends this section of this morning's sermon with one final look at two concepts, both vertical and horizontal, in the way that he models this letter to the church in Colossae. Let's read verse 5. He says, all of this is because he's thankful because of what happens in verse 5, and also the love and faithfulness is because of what's going to happen in verse 5. He says, all of this is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Which brings us to our third and final point for this morning, that the Colossian church hoped in heaven as a result of hearing the word here on earth. As a result of hearing the word on earth, they had a hope that fixed their gaze on heaven. And we should respond to the word of God in the same way. So often when we hear the word of God or when we approach it in our morning devos, even the way I think sometimes we organize devotional books that we sell at Christian bookstores, we focus so much on how God's word can impact our current setting. As it should, don't get me wrong, God's word has an impact, as we've seen here, on how we love each other and how we pray for each other and are thankful for each other. But more than that, the Bible is not just a book of morals or a book of collections of sayings that make our life a little bit better. The word of God is his promise about what is going to happen in the future and what he has promised to those who love him and respond in faith. Imagine if you knew what the winning lottery ticket numbers were next month. If you knew for sure what they were, think about how that would impact the way that you lived your life right now. In the same way, if you knew who was going to win the Super Bowl, and I know some of you think you know that, but if you really knew who was going to win the Super Bowl, and you were a betting person, and you knew that you had the winning bet, think about how you would live your life today in light of what you expected in the future. When we receive God's word, we should treat it the same way. We should recognize that God's word is not just given for a temporal, earthly purpose, but even bigger than that, for an eternal purpose, a reminder, a promise that this is not our final home, that we have a future kingdom in a new heaven, in new earth, that this is only going to like, seem like a blink of an eye to in comparison of, therefore, we should act like it. We should listen to God's word. 
We should receive God's word and not just have an earthly focus as a result and be better boys and better girls, but have a heavenly focus that looks ahead and says that we are going to live on this earth in light of what God has promised in the future. And when we do that, we become a church that is honoring to the Lord. Because so often as churches, we focus so much on the temporal. How can we get more people? How can we build a bigger program? How can we have a better website or a cooler this or a cooler that or more toys over here or more toys over there? All of that's going to burn. Yet God's kingdom will last. When I was candidating last December, I called us as a church in the book of Zechariah to have a three-dimensional faith. That's what hope is. Hope is really just a faith that looks to the future. We're also called to have a faith in the past that looks to the cross for our salvation. But just like Abraham was given a promise, just like David was given a promise, and just like the church today is given a promise, we are to walk and live by faith in conviction and assurance that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth where we will reign eternally. Therefore, we should worship with one another and we should interact with one another as we would in that future kingdom and not just hear God's word as merely just a set of morals to make our life a little easier here on earth. As we close in this introduction of Paul's letter to the Colossians, it should also be said that whether he recognized it or not, Paul's letter was also a prophetic letter. Because remember, the city of Colossae was sitting on that fault line between the two tectonic plates of that continent. And we know with pretty good certainty, just around within a year of when Paul wrote that letter, that just merely months later, a devastating earthquake destroyed the city of Colossae. This letter that we're going to study was written to a small rural town that wouldn't even exist a year from then. But guess what? Even though the earthly city of Colossae no longer exists, the church of Jesus Christ in Colossae still exists in God's presence today. It is eternal. Those people that Paul wrote to, they are still around. They still exist because they are eternal, and they are with God, praising him at this very moment, even though the city of Colossae is literally underground. We have yet to archaeologically excavate it. Earthly things will pass away, but the, the word of the Lord remains forever, which means that we as Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, it is good for us to gather we should take this seriously. We should use the way that we relate to Christ to impact the way we relate to others. But we should function as a church with an eternal focus. How do the things that we do glorify God in realms of eternity? And I believe that if we do that, God will use this church. So let's walk by faith vertically as we follow him, but also horizontally as we display his love to others. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your church that nothing can break, nothing can tear it down. Earthquakes may come, wars may come and go, mountains rise and fall, but your word remains forever. 
And your church is built upon your word and the sacrifice of your word, your son, Jesus Christ. And so may you teach us to rely upon that and understand that our walk with you, Lord, convict us of the need to walk with you in a way that is focused on both you and others in a way that is codependent, in a way that is flourishing in our Christian life. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, as I dismiss you, let me send you out with a word from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You guys are dismissed.